Welcome to the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. As always, I'm Joe Campbell, and joining me today, as always, are Alex Patton. Hello. And Nathan Stone. Well, hello there, because... because... I don't know. We tried to go for something there, and it dropped like a hot deuce. Just like my marriage, it fell apart. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, As we record this, it is May 10th, which is recognized as International Monty Python Day. That's right, the ridiculous six, the British buffoons, the BBC jesters, actually have an international day for themselves. Who knew? I certainly didn't until I'm reading this uh, transcript that Nate wrote earlier. (laughs) Hey, I tried my best. You did a very good job on this one. I I give you props. Uh, so we kind of thought that we could all use a good laugh now, you know, with the world falling apart, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's burning outside. Uh, the pestilence is kind of just clearing through. Now yeah. we have murder hornets, apparently, too. That's the last thing I need right now. That solidifies me staying inside for, like, ever. I'm not going outside anymore. What if murder hornets were a conspiracy built by the government to keep everybody inside because <laughs> too many people are going outside? All genetically engineered. <laughs> no, the whole thing, the murder hornets, the coronavirus, is to keep everyone inside because they need to change the batteries on the birds. Oh. <laughs> I see, like that one. I like that one. See, that makes a lot more sense. Anyway, so as we get ready to talk about three Monty Python movies, I believe these are the only three movies that they made together. Uh, if you don't count their uh, anthology movies or Monty Python's Flying Circus-esque movies. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to be talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. We're going to be talking about the life of Brian, and we will be talking about the meaning of life. The movie, not the actual meaning of life. Although we can start pontificating if we want to. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then to round things off at the end, we'll just show clips of a whole bunch of penises to piss off the censors. <laughs> uh, we can't make them any more prouder than that. But before we get into all of that, we're going to talk about what we've been watching on our own recently. Uh, I guess I'll kick us off today. I don't think I've kicked us off in a while for this. The floor is yours, man. Go right ahead. So I've recently, in in quarantine, I've been revisiting a lot of the movies that I actually own uh, on my Blu-ray shelf, checking out some stuff that I haven't watched in a while. And I've decided with all this time on my hands, uh, not running out to the theaters, I might as well revisit the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit extended edition trilogy box sets that I had sitting up there because they've been neglected for quite some time man isn't that like a, a full two days of just movie watching right there at, at, at least uh each one comes the longest lord of the rings movie is like around a little over four hours the shortest they get is i think like two hours 45 minutes so i'm i i recently i watched all three lord of the rings movies and then i just went straight into the hobbit movies and i'm kind of wishing that i watched them in chronological order because i haven't done that yet but no i started with fellowship the ring two towers return of the king and then the three uh, hobbit movies in in order mm-hmm. so lord of the rings is kind of what got me interested in filmmaking and researching how movies are made uh, for it when i was a kid because i was probably around 10 12 when they came out and we got the DVDs and I would watch the behind the scenes, you know, how did Peter Jackson put it all together? And I was fascinated and it just kind of got me into in, interested in how movies are made and what what, what it takes to, to write and the differences between directors and producers. So The Lord of the Rings is kind of a very big film for me as far as propelling my interest in movies in general. And I, I didn't grow up with the extended editions, so it was interesting watching them now because I'm familiar with them now having watched them since then, but... I'm still at this point where I can kind of pick out where a lot of the differences are, little minor nitpicks. But for the most part, it's astounding to me how Peter Jackson puts together these stories where there's so much craft behind them, especially in how they put every little detail together. But at the same time, they keep the story and the heart of Tolkien's books there. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like like all around, these these movies are perfect in as far as balancing themes stories, characters, acting, cinematography, technical aspects, the the props, everything about these movies is just perfect. Well, I mean, I guess if you're in Peter Jackson's shoes and you're kind of going to New Line and saying, hey, can I get like, what was it, $300 billion to make these three films? And you probably had to have a tight and solid three scripts just going into that. And I guess what fascinates me is that, you know, I've had a chance to see the extended cut and that's a very, you know, tightly 
you know, packed movie. And even when they had to trim it down even more for the theatrical cut, it still works. Like, obviously, a lot of the excess is trimmed off, but both versions still work very well. Yeah, I mean, with how with how much goes on in the books themselves, I mean, like, they stretched, you know, Hobbit out for three movies. I'm surprised that they were able to fit as much as they did in the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about the, the Hobbit movies is that Peter Jackson was very faithful to the spirit of Tolkien with the original three uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Moving into The Hobbit, he, he, he took over from Del Toro. I think Del Toro was who was originally going to make those movies. I think he had like a year and a half of pre-production before he left. Mm-hmm. And Peter Jackson just kind of picked up from where Del Toro left off and tried to turn it into his own project at the last minute. So th- those movies are interesting just from the beginning because, you know, in uh, Lord of the Rings, he had years and years of pre-production to get everything ready for Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit, he didn't have nearly that much time. And as from what I understand, they were pretty much making up a lot of it as they were going along. I mean, when you're dealing with like a green screen room and pretty much just minimal set pieces and, you know, what they were shooting at the 40K frames per second, which kind of really didn't catch on as we all thought it would. Huh? Well, yeah, no one remembers that anymore. So I know it's really popular to shit on the Hobbit movies. I still really enjoy them. They're they're not nearly on the caliber of the Lord, the Lord of the Rings movies. But I kind of seem to, uh, maybe you will comment in on this, Joe, but I think what's great about the Hobbit movies is you get a lot more of Peter Jackson's fun added to the film. You actually see his uh, actual style come out. Like I think with the Lord of the Rings, he had to be a little bit more conservative. He had to actually make this work. I mean, because after before that, all he had, what was the Frighteners and Meet the Feebles kind of under his belt. So Dead Alive. Dead Alive. Yeah. So he really had to sell this and make this work with The Hobbit. He's like, eh, whatever. I'm going to have Bumbler in a barrel just fighting off some goblins. Yeah, that's that's the thing is that I I, I get a lot of Tolkien purists really hate the Hobbit movies because they do kind of betray the spirit of of Tolkien. And there there are moments in there that work really well. Martin Freeman playing Bilbo, perfect casting. I think the way that they portrayed Bard the Bowman from the books was even better than they had in the books. Bard the Bowman, uh, played by by Luke Evans, is fantastic in, in the movies. And then it's got a lot of garbage, like the Tariel, Legolas, Keeley love triangle, which I just, blah. The whole The whole Gandalf and Dol Guldur subplot, good idea, but the way it was done was just, you could, you could cut that out of the movie. It doesn't make much difference. Right. But I do love that in the absence of Peter Jackson just kind of scrambling to get these movies made and try to make something cohesive of it, that he really does lean into his early genre tropes. And that is most evident in the Battle of the Five Armies, especially the extended cut of the movie, which I remember seeing in theaters and not liking it as much as the previous film, which was the uh, uh, the Desolation of Smog. Mm-hmm. However, the extended edition is insane. <laughs> Didn't he get like a rated R for the extended it cut? It, it, we, have an, we officially have an R-rated Hobbit movie, and it's just the, the, the craziest Peter Jackson stuff. There's a whole sequence, an extended sequence with a, a war chariot led by giant rams, and it's got like those spikes like sticking out of the wheels, mm-hmm. and it's just decimating orcs in bloody explosions left and right. There's a moment where there's like five or six trolls just standing there, and this thing, this chariot leaps over a ridge, and decapitates all of them with <laughs> huge explosions of blood. This thing is ridiculous. We're talking about like Evil Dead levels here, and in a couple of moments. But it's like you know, you know, Peter Jackson really leans into kind of that weird, spectacular stuff. And in Battle of the Five Armies, also, I would argue it has some of the best quiet moments too. I think the relationship between Bilbo and Thorin is best in that movie, where you have Thorin is he, he's overwhelmed by this dragon fever. He's he's he wants all the gold for himself. And then Bilbo comes in and he's trying to save him. And there's some tension between them. I just wish there was more of that throughout all three movies. But for what it's worth, you know, it's it's not Lord of the Rings, but I enjoy kind of the goofy, over-the-top silliness of those movies. The spider sequence in the second movie, great. Smaug, perfect with Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, oh, yeah. So there are great moments in these movies. Yeah, I think it's just great when you look at behind-the-scene features of Benedict Cumberbatch just like, really getting into the whole performance of it like he's on the ground he's crawling on all fours just really breathing like a dragon it's it's impressive to watch if that's the one thing i actually like about all six of these movies is how it just brought out some really good mocap cgi performances from andy circus playing Gollum, of course and then benedict as smaug it's 
you can't top off that. So Lord of the Rings, perfect trilogy still holds up. The Hobbit uh, trilogy, yeah, super problematic. A lot of problems with it, but I, I still I still get a, get, a, get a kick out of them. We don't have anybody else doing big budget fantasy like Peter Jackson was doing with those movies, even with him going full Peter Jackson. So I, I, I get a kick out of the Hobbit movies. So I do have to ask, did you watch all of these in just like a whole weekend or have you just been kind of like sparsing them out? Oh, I've got kids. I don't have time to sit down and watch each one of these all the way through. It took me like, <laughs> it, it took me probably about a week to get through uh, through, through all of them. So I, I, a little, little, little over a week. Now I'm going to work through all the, uh, the behind the scenes, the, the appendices. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested to get to the Hobbit to see what went, what went wrong <laughs> with that one? Man, how, how did Joe spend his COVID-19? I watched all the appendices of the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> it's not going to go for several years. <laughs> all right, uh, Nathan, what you got? All right. Um, you know, kind of in light of trying to get ready for this uh, Monty Python sketch, I decided to watch kind of a comedy that takes me back to college days, uh, Hot Rod. Oh, self-proclaimed stuntman Rod Kimball is preparing for the jump of his life to clear 15 buses to raise money for his abusive stepfather Frank's life-saving heart operation. So this is an interesting comedy. It's, you know, it's brought to us by Andy Samberg, who at the time I believe was coming off of Saturday Night Live. And it also stars Bill Hader and a very early Danny McBride. So... I guess what people just love about this movie and at least a lot of my friends do is just the juvenile, immature, random humor that just is sprinkled throughout. It's like, you have these guys just, it sounds like they're ad-libbing it all the way through, but it's fun. Like the editing is a treat to watch and the music and the soundtrack is just great as well. I mean, it's, it's produced by the same guys who are from the lonely Island. So, you know, the music is kind of part of their background in this. And I don't know. I think you guys have seen this movie, right? And I have, yeah, years ago. Yeah. I have not, actually. Whoa, that's okay. So I nominate Joe Campbell to watch Hot Rod f- before our next podcast. That is his homework assignment. If he chooses to accept this, he doesn't get anything. It's... You know what? Challenge accepted. I will make that happen. All right. Um, only because there's just a lot of stuff that became viral after this movie. And this is kind of like... Definitely did not make a whole lot when it first came out, but it's had a following since then. It's a fun little movie. Um, I think the best thing I loved about it was I was watching with my folks who had never seen it, and they didn't know how to receive it. They're like, (laughs) what are we watching? Um, He's one of the directors of Popstar. Yes, he is. That's (laughs) not (laughs) not the comment. (laughs) So that was um, a little fun thing to watch. Uh, all right. So the second movie I watched this past uh, two weeks was a one that just came out on Amazon Prime. This is an interesting one. I guess like if you've ever wondered what the Coen brothers would look like if it was directed by uh, two female directors and set in a fisherman's town, um, this is what it'd be like. It's called Blow the Man Down, directed by Bridget Savage Cole and Danielle Curdy. Two sisters, Mary Beth and Priscilla Connolly, attempt to cover up a gruesome run-in with a dangerous man. To conceal their crime, the sisters must go deep into the criminal underbelly of their hometown, uncovering the town's darkest secrets. Um, I just kind of heard you, uh, Alex. I'm guessing you've heard about this movie? Yeah, I've seen a few ads for it, and it looked pretty interesting. It's kind of an interesting movie. It's kind of like it's like a twisty black comedy thriller in the same vein as like most Coen Brother movies. But it's the scope of how it just paints this fisherman town in Maine. These two sisters who are, you know, trying to cover up that they just killed this man. And they're kind of running in with this uh, madam that's played by Margot Martindale, um, who's kind of like trying to sniff him out and trying to see what they're up to. And she's kind of scary. She looks like, you know, very middle-aged, frumpy lady from New England, but she you cross her path the wrong way she can be scary and uh, i don't know this was interesting just because there's like a lot of things that they do artistically and you could tell these girls didn't have much of a budget so but they're making the use of their settings and the way they use their camera and the performances are nothing to wow about but there's some little performances here and there that are really good yeah yeah i've heard this brought up in some of my film circles recently and it's uh piqued my interest yeah i would say it starts off really strong um the third act is kind of interesting and i think the third act is what will make or break a lot of people but uh, for something that was kind of like a first time find and uh just to sit down and watch it was it was kind of interesting nice and that's all i have so alex your turn all righty so uh recently um, been doing a 
couple movie nights a week with um, some friends on Discord. Um, one of the movies we watched was Black Dynamite. Yes. <laughs> I had never seen this movie. Oh my god! I have. I wish I had seen it so much sooner. This is this is hilarious. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, so it it blew me out of the water. It is definitely a treat to watch. Like uh, if you're like. Our friend Joe, who kind of, I guess, went through a black exploitation like marathon at one time. You know, you saw this, and you saw was it My Name Is Dolomite? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't watch this uh, recently. I, I, I saw that. I saw this in college. Uh, recently, I have watched uh, the Dolomite movies and My Name Is Dolomite. Uh, so, which, which Alex, I would recommend if you liked Black Dynamite, I'd recommend yeah. checking out the Dolomite movies because you might okay. get a kick out of those now. Yeah, I think I think I'm, I think I will. But yeah, Black Dynamite. Yeah, completely surprised me. I thought it was going to be kind of your general run-of-the-mill like weird comedy let's just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks kind of deal but like everything stuck it was just that good and it was just it was the kind of thing where you know no matter what weird and crazy set piece they went on to next it, it always was hilarious and it was never disappointing or never not entertaining even when it got like stupidly crazy towards the end it just kept going and going and going and I think the characters, of course, just made it the best. I mean, Black Dynamite himself was incredible, and the entire cast around him just played their parts perfectly. So this was a real surprise for me. Yeah. So the the other one, another one that we uh, did watch, they watched it like literally the next day, but we watched uh, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. So another kind of weird, sort of off the wall comedy. It's just a spoof on on horror movies and like and whatnot. But uh, essentially, the breakdown is it, of it, or synopsis of it, is uh, two hillbillies are suspected of being killers by a group of paranoid college kids camping near the duo's West Virginia cabin. As the body count climbs, so does the fear and confusion as the college kids try to seek revenge against the pair. Had you this, seen this before, Alex? I had. I saw it a while back, and I didn't really care for it all that much. I think I, I just wasn't maybe wasn't in the mood to watch it, but watching it again, though, recently... I liked it a bit more. You know, I was tracking with the jokes a lot more and ended up being a lot more entertaining. So, yeah, I'd say it might be something that's a little bit better with repeat viewings or unless you're unless you're a big like horror buff and you want a bit of dose of comedy and satire, then this is definitely the thing to check out. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It seems like it falls in the same vein for people who love like uh, Ash versus the Evil Dead or any of those like schlocky horror films. Yeah, it's got that kind of I think that's that similar sort of vibe to it i I, w- I would probably equate it actually to something like uh probably more like cabin in the woods it's it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's, really, it's really more of a genre deconstruction where it's taking an angle of oh what if the killer hillbillies in the woods are actually the good guys and okay the, the, and, the, and the teens coming in are the crazy ones kind of a thing you know? okay is it that self-aware of the, what they're farcing or parody oh yes oh yeah um, I saw this one and then I rewatched it, I think, last year uh, around Halloween. I've, I've watched it fairly recently and it's been one that, I mean, I know this movie has a huge cult following. Like, people mm-hmm. love this movie and I've always really enjoyed it, uh, but I've never, you know, it's never been at the, the top of my list. It's, it's, it's one that I'm always down to watch, but it's not one that I'll, I'll ever think of, you know, like, I'd rather put Evil Dead 2 on or Cabin in the Woods on, but I'm, I'm yeah. always down to watch Tucker and Dale versus Evil. It's, it's a fun sit. Yeah, I would say it's not it's not something that's great, but it's definitely enjoyable. You know, it's not it's not bad. I mean, apparently it has a high rating on Rotten Tomatoes as well. So, it's... oh, yeah, people love this movie. Yeah. OK, well, I guess I, I know what I'm going to have lined up then for my next uh, Halloween and uh, marathoning. So, yeah, or maybe you, sooner. Yeah, sandwich that in, in between some like actual like horror movies, you know. Give yourself a bit of a break. But um, other than that, I I talked about um, playing Doom, uh, Doom 2016 on the last podcast. So I finally beat that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I That was the first Doom game that I've ever played. I had never got the chance to play the originals. Um, so this was the first one that I got to step into. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of weird coming from like a I, the games that I play are pretty strictly FPS it's still first person, but you can't really ADS except for like one gun. So it's weird to have to work around that and, you know, manage your sensitivity around that. But even then it was still, it was, it's just a blast, man. Like it can get a little old in that every sort of like big fight is just, 
you're thrown into a room and there's just a shit ton of demons and you have to kill them all. That's pretty much the extent of what the game is. But what makes it a lot of fun is just the movement. Um, you, I mean, your your movement's pretty quick and there's a lot you can do in the ver- in vertical space. Um, you get a double jump, so you're able to you know climb up to different higher platforms, uh, just jump around and kind of kite a lot of the demons you know, into a grenade or into a rocket or something like that. So the movement's really fun. Um, just, yeah, it's a lot. It's really fast paced. It feels a bit weird on controller. It almost feels like delayed the actual movement, not so much the, um, the aiming, but just the movement feels a little weird until you get one of the runes to help your in air movement. But anyway, I beat that story's fine. It's, you know, I, I read a lot of the lore, little collectible pieces that you can pick up, and it's cool enough to keep, you know, keep yourself interested and keep it going, but it's not remarkable by any means, I'd say. I was going to ask, did you ever uh, play that uh, version when the the movie Doom came out with Dwayne Johnson? Oh, God, no. No, like I said, this is the first Doom game that I've played. Uh, I didn't, did they make them? A- <laughs> game based off of the movie yes they did and oh. it was horrible it's pretty much <laughs> you just go you're just going from room to room and dwayne johnson's there and he's just talking to you there's hardly any demon killing oh my, oh my gosh, gosh. Oh, yeah that's well there's hardly any terrible. demons in the movie no that's true so that's <laughs> living up to the movie so i even remember seeing watching the movie like over 10 years ago and just like then you get to the fps scene at the at the end it's just like what the fuck <laughs> Hey, how dare you slander the best part in that trash movie? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the best part, but it's still... It, it, it's not it worth it. Sucks. I know, it's like you've watched two hours of this and that's all that you get. Yeah. So I haven't played a, a whole lot of video games, uh, modern day video games, but but Doom is, is, is one of the few that I, I wish I had tried out. Because I mean, I mean, I mean, I've played, what, Red Dead Redemption. Uh, there's some, some, some game series where you're fighting aliens, I think in the... 50s something like that uh anyway doom is one of those classics that i just wish i'd gotten around to and it sounds like the sort of thing that i would have a lot of fun with uh, oh yeah one of, the, one of the one of the many different versions of the game yeah what's cool is actually when i bought doom 2016 they had on playstation um the original doom and doom 2 were also on sale for like a couple books each so i picked those up as well and i was playing i've got to play a little bit of the original doom Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, that one, that's pretty fun. It's definitely a completely different experience than, you know, modern <laughs> FPS games, but it's cool to see, like, kind of where everything started from. But other than the Doom, I started playing Wolfenstein New Order again. Um, I I'd, I'd started it maybe like a year or two ago. Um, got maybe about a, a couple hours into the game and then just put it down for something else. Um, so after doing, after I finished Doom, I wanted to pick this up again. The game's okay. Honestly, I'm not stoked on it. And I, the only reason I think I'm going to keep playing it is just to, just to beat it. The story's good, actually. The story's fine. But I hate, I don't like the gameplay at all. Sprinting feels completely jarring. ADSing. The ADS has weird, really, really strong aim assist where... If you um, if your crosshair is like even barely touching an enemy and you aid and you aim down sights, it'll just snap to their center mass and it feels really weird because if they're moving, it'll snap to just where they were at that time that you press the button and they've already moved and it's going to be hard to track them. Plus the additional like screen clutter that you get with the um, you know the I was going to say lens flare, but the uh, flash of the of the gun and the recoil and everything just makes it pretty hard to really fight a lot. It's it's kind of a cover based shooter as well, which I'm not too stoked on. I like being able to move around and jump around, which is why I enjoy Doom a lot. So, yeah, Wolfenstein's not really my deal. The story's cool, like I said. I think that and just to f- actually finish the game finally is going to be what's pushing me to to keep playing really COVID 19 goals right there yep just finish some old games <laughs> pretty much what I'm doing. Uh, but other than that that's what i've been up to just been watching and playing 
All righty. Well, with that, we will move on to our main topic, Monty Python. Or as they say on the show, and now for something completely different. So before we jump into the movies, uh, I just just real quick, I'm out of curiosity. What is each of your guys' history with Monty Python, if any? Uh, and, and I'm talking about just just condensed. What are you familiar with? What have you seen? And just kind of general impressions of Monty Python before we did this marathon. So, uh, Nate, I know you're really excited about this one. So. <laughs> Let's get started with you. Uh, yeah. So, gosh, this takes me back to high school, actually. So I remember actually being introduced to the Holy Grail, actually, by my dad. And I think like any young lad of 16, they think it's the funniest thing since Exploding Beavers. So, yeah, I really liked it. And I think after that, I kind of started dabbling and looking into, I guess, the little sketches that they did for the Flying Circus show that they did. You know, everything from the Dead Parrot sketch to the I'm a Lumberjack to they're much more obscure and kind of more raunchier segments. Um, but I, I th think it's like good British humor. These guys, they kind of like were just throwing shit into the fan and seeing what sticks and i think the writing style definitely lends to it i'd always liked the the funniest joke in the world and the one where all the australians are named bruce myself oh yes i think my favorite's always been uh was it uh woody words where uh, graham chapman is just like this very stuffy aristocrat guy and he's just announcing all these woody words and just having a blast with it. And everybody says tinny words uh scares away his daughter it's absurd and ridiculous but there's also spam. That's true. Alex? Um, I had only seen the Holy Grail um, years ago, I think in probably in high school. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, there's so many great quotes from it. So I'd seen it a couple times, um, but I'd never really ventured outside of just that movie. Um, so I'd never really seen anything else that they had done. So I was most familiar with them prior to actually sitting down and watching the movies in college, right after college, I think was the time that I started really watching the, the, the movies of theirs and getting into some of, you know, Terry Gilliam stuff and some of the other stuff that they'd done separately afterwards. But I was mostly familiar with them through watching bits and pieces of theirs, as, as in like watching the individual sketches themselves as YouTube videos. That's how I got familiar with them was just, oh, you know, you know they... Here's, here's the dead parrot sketch. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, here is the Black Knight scene from Holy Grail. Oh, that's great. And watching uh, Holy Grail this time, I realized that before I had actually sat down and watched that movie beginning to end, I think I'd pretty much seen the whole thing in bits and pieces on right. the internet. You kind of seen it like almost like kind of like as the vignettes says, they kind of would have been like on the show. Yeah, Exactly. And there was a point of time, uh, probably when I was in high school, when I thought that they were the funniest damn thing I'd ever seen. I was really into British absurdist humor. And since then, you know, I've gone on to watch some some other kind of weird British humor stuff. Like, uh, I, I, I love Faulty Towers with John Cleese. It's one of my favorite comedy shows. Uh, more recently, I like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and uh, the IT crowd, stuff like that. But Monty Python was really my kind of my introduction to British humor. Yeah, I was going to actually ask, did you ever dabble into Black Adder at all? I hadn't. Um, and I've, I've, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, I feel like at one point I tried watching a little bit of it and it just didn't grab me, but uh, I should give it another shot. Yeah, I think if anything, what just uh, with Black Adder, it's a little bit more grounded. Like their sketches aren't like completely off the wall and break the fourth walls all the time that Monty Python are just so well versed at. But it's, it's, it's good stuff. I mean, if you love British humor, there's a whole like just slew of series and TV shows out there but yeah quite quite honestly ron atkinson is a is, is a comedian that i've just i don't know his, his stuff hasn't really grabbed me yet except for the um the johnny english movies oddly enough <laughs> oh wait wait you don't like mr bean miss mr bean's another one that i just never got into really uh, like, I've, I've seen a little bit of his stuff and just what little of it that i saw just didn't didn't grab me it's it's his his style of humor reminds me a lot of Danny Kay and Danny Kay was an actor that I just really didn't get into as a kid. I think it's because the performances are more based on facial yeah. goofiness and mm -hmm. kind of physical comedy. That's not, not really my thing. Whereas Monty Python is absurdist humor and it's a lot of non sequitur humor, but it's also very clever. Whereas I kind of felt like Rowan Atkinson and Danny Kay are just more just physical comedy without 
I don't know, just like, oh, he's making a funny face. But I could be totally wrong about that because I haven't really explored them, you know? Right. Totally understand. Well, now, Alex, it sounds like you hadn't really had any real history with Monty Python. Is is yeah. British humor the sort of thing that you get into? Or is, I, know, I know a lot of people find British humor, to, especially Monty Python's kind of humor, to be a little too weird and, and, and out there. Uh, does this stuff hit, hit with you or is it kind of like not, not really your thing? For most of the Holy Grail, yeah, I did like it. British humor as a whole is kind of hit or miss for me some of the stuff's pretty funny but others it just kind of lands a bit flat for me monty python though specifically for holy grail um i loved it so it is a bit absurd and that takes a little getting used to especially with their later movies but for the general majority of it i i liked it anyway let's 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 move into the first one so monty python and the holy grail uh, this isn't this isn't my first time watching any of these movies. Uh, this is probably only the second time that I've actually sat down and watched Holy Grail beginning to end, though. Yeah, I think I've probably seen this movie maybe 10 times in my life. <laughs> I think what I love about this movie and what makes it work so well, and I don't know, maybe you guys can vouch for this. I think just how it kind of just fits the Monty Python formula so well. Like, it's not a solid story. It's not a solid narrative. There is this story of King Arthur and his knights trying to find the Holy Grail. That's their quest. But everything else is just their misadventures. And it just, the transitions from scene to scene is like, there's no continuity. There's no actual good segue. It's just like, all right, we're just going to go from one thing and then plop us into the next thing. So it feels very much like the show. It kind of like, they would just like plop you here, plop you there. And then they just break the rules of continuity and just space and time all the time. I think that's what makes this work so well. And I think that's why everyone else loves this is because it's a great, you know, it lives up to the Monty Python formula very well. I, I think one reason I actually thought about this watching specifically Holy Grail this time, what, what makes this movie and a lot of Monty Python's humor work really really well is that it's absurd and it's nonsensical but a lot of the humor comes from characters reacting to the nonsense in very uh natural ways and this makes me think of reading about monty python a little bit in the group people often ask the group why they never made another movie after the meaning of life and i think it was john cleese who mentioned at one point that he didn't really feel like they could because the whole crew wasn't there because after Graham Chapman died, he was an important part of the group. And one of the reasons he was an important part of the group was because he, he was almost the straight man of a, of a lot of their, their, their sketches because some, some, some of the other crew could be over the top and goofy, but that's all they could really play. Whereas Graham Chapman would come in and be the voice of reason. Like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I, I do believe in, we'll get into Life and Brian, but he definitely plays more of the straight man in that. But I think you're, you're, you're right, Joe. I think what makes their comedy work so well is these six guys are just completely outrageous in their characters. Whereas like, if you actually look at everyone else around them, everyone else is playing it pretty straight. Well, one of, one of the sketches I think that really exemplifies what I was thinking of, and, and, and it's kind of the moment that it clicked with me, like, oh, this is why this kind of humor works so well, is at the very beginning, when he's coming up to the castle, and at first it's funny that it's just a guy running along with the coconuts, you know, being clapped together to make horse trotting sounds. But then he comes to the castle wall and the people on the castle wall question everything about the coconuts and about like the, the logistics of, wait, hold on a second. How do you get the coconuts there? Wait, why are you doing this? This is so stupid. I know. And they start getting into the tension of like, well, what is it an African swallow or European swallow? Could it <laughs> do it if it grabbed by the husks? So it's not just the fact that it's absurd. It's the fact that characters within the sketch realize it's absurd and are calling it out, which, and, and they, they do that several times throughout the movie. What? You've got two empty halves of coconut and you're banging them together. So we have ridden since the snows of winter covered this land. Through the kingdom of Mercia, through... Where'd you get the coconuts? We found them. Found them? In Mercia, the coconut's tropical. What do you mean? Well, this is a temperate zone. The swallow may fly south with the sun, or the house martin or the plover may seek warmer climes in winter, yet these are not strangers to our land. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow? 
I do want to ask, like, uh, have you guys like looked into the history of making this movie with uh, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones both like tag teaming as the directors on this movie? I, I I've done a little bit, not 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 a lot, and by by a little bit of research, I mean that I just browse the Wikipedia pages for some of these movies and Monty Python, and from what I can gather, Terry Jones comes from a very theatrical background, and he likes to shoot things very kind of flatly and straight, whereas Terry Gilliam liked to experiment and do some more of the crazy stuff, which is why when he branched off, he did more sci-fi and over-the-top stuff. Or as we get into the meaning of life, you can definitely tell which segment he directed in that movie. Yep. And I will get into that too. Um, but I think in this movie, we get a little bit of uh, Terry Gilliam's style, like with the set decor, like how everything is just, I mean, you guys know, like this movie was probably made on like hardly any budget at all. Like they were just like grabbing whatever they could, whatever sets, whatever castles they can find, whatever costumes came across their way. Even like that famous ending where, you know, all the soldiers kind of like just get cut off just before they finish their charge. A big reason why that happened is because they only had the extras for one day and they didn't know how to wrap it up. So they're like, oh, let's, uh, let's just end it this way. And it's the one scene where it can be very off-putting for some people, but a lot of people think it's like one of the best comedic endings because it's like a running joke throughout the whole film with the historian and the wife doing this investigation and then them coming in and just stopping everything dead in its tracks. So it's kind of just shows how these guys were improvising while on set. They really did not know what they were doing and they were trying to tag team each other. And sometimes like Terry Gilliam would just get really frustrated and storm off and then Terry Jones would take over. So they're still able to kind of like stay on production schedule, but it's it's interesting to see all of them collaborate on that. I will say about that ending specifically, one of the quote unquote problems with a movie like Holy Grail is that because it is centered around the the comedy, the sketch format, so plot doesn't really matter. I mean, there is technically a plot, but mm -hmm. it, yeah. you're not watching it for the plot. You're not watching it for the characters. You're watching it to see, oh, what's the next funny thing that's going to happen? Yeah, And that works for a while, but it can get old very quickly. And I found both times that I've watched Holy Grail beginning to end, that ending comes just in time when I'm about to think, all right, this has gone on for long enough. And just when I'm thinking that, you know, cops come in and stop the movie, and the movie's done. <laughs> but yeah. which I think is great, and I, 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 I don't know if they thought about length when they made the movie, or if they, you know, planned out anything. I just love how when I'm kind of reaching the point where I'm thinking, all right, this this movie can't really go on for much longer before it starts to lose my interest. The movie just abruptly ends. It does do that very well. Like it kind of just has that sensibility of like knowing when the audience is losing interest and they are able to throw something in the cogs. But that was actually something I realized this time around is Monty Python tends to have this scene where they start off pretty strong with their absurd humor. Throughout it, you kind of start realizing there's not a whole lot of legs to keep you going all the way to the end. And unless you are building up to something big or even just like a good joke like that one kind of did. Their formula kind of does lose steam. So you're right, Joey. It had a weird way for this first time being their first film of just keeping your attention up until that point. Well, yeah, because after the first you know hour, hour and 10 minutes, if, if you have even one sketch that's a dud, that could lose the audience that late into the movie. Uh, but I think this movie holds up, though, I mean, all, all the way through. Yeah, I think the part for me every time I've watched it when I start kind of losing interest is right around the time when they meet Tim the Enchanter and the man-eating rabbit. Like, until, like, those two come in, I'm like, okay, I, I could probably be done with this movie now. But those two come in, I'm like, okay, now I'm, I'm engaged again. You silly sod. Oh. You guys all worked up. Well, that's no ordinary rabbit. That's the most foul, cruel, and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on. You tit! I saw my arm and I was so scared. Look, that rabbit's got a vicious street a mile wide. It's a killer. Get stuck. He'll do you a treat, mate. Oh, you yeah? manky Scots git. I'm warning you. What's he do? Nibble your bum? He's got huge, sharp... He can leap about... Look at the bones! Go on, boys, chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. One rabbit suit coming right up. Look! <laughs> Jesus Christ! I warned you. Anyway, do you guys want to move on to Life of Brian? Yes, let's. Let's talk about controversy. All right, so Life of Brian. This is one of the movies where uh, growing up as a 
as as as, as a good little homeschooled Catholic, mm-hmm. this this was a movie that is a guilty pleasure. Well, no, I I never watched it because it was one of the movies where whenever anybody mentioned it, you know, within the, the, my Catholic circle, would be like, oh, that that blasphemous movie, you know, you know, it's one of those bad movies. So I finally watched it uh, shortly out of college. I think I finally got around to watching it, and I was surprised at how unoffensive it was. Yeah. I was expecting it to be way worse, like, or just bad in general. And it, I couldn't find anything like terrible in it. Well, maybe just Graham Chapman's penis, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's like from a religious standpoint, like there's nothing really to worry about in this, in this movie uh, It's being touted as the movie where they make fun of Jesus. They don't make fun of Jesus. And I was, I was reading up again a little bit on this, on the making of this movie and apparently that their, their intent was specifically not to make a movie poking fun specifically at Jesus. Now, the movie does does make fun of organized religion in general and mm-hmm. about blind faith and and all of that. Uh, but specifically, the, the movie almost goes out of its way not to make jabs at Jesus, which I thought was interesting. The whole joke of it is just misdirection and kind of like, as you said, blind faith and, and how that kind of will play to a fault where they all assume this guy, Brian, because he said this and he was on the spot as like one of the prophets just standing in the square, just ranting about, they think, oh, he's the Messiah. And it's, it's kind of, yeah, it just plays off of that joke. And actually that joke doesn't come until like halfway through the film. Um, the rest of it is just Brian wanting to be a part of something, you know, get the attention of this girl. And it's kind of pretty much like it's going on that kind of a trail. And then, yeah, it's, you're right. It doesn't really go out of its way to deliberately attack Christians or, you know, Jews or even just, you know, the, the belief of Jesus. It's like, yeah, it's just making fun of everybody who kind of falls victim to that misconception. Possibly the only like offensive thing that I saw watching that movie was in the very beginning. Cause it looks like one of the wise men played by one of the actors is wearing blackface. Oh yep. yeah. It's, it's John Cleese. <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. I saw that. I was like, wait, what? That's it, and that's like the most like possibly offensive thing that they could have in the movie. That's it. Well, well, which, which is funny because and, and we'll we'll get around to meaning of life. But at one point in meaning of life, you see the, the there's a sequence where you see the three wise men in the background, and I'm pretty sure they got all black actors to play them. Oh in that, yeah, that one sequence too. Uh, <laughs> I, I I could be wrong, but it looked like it. Yeah, no, I think they kind of that's probably makeup for the makeup, as they say. Um, but no, I, I think what's kind of interesting about this movie with life and Brian is that I feel like it's the straightest narrative of all three films. Like, Oh, I agree. It it definitely has its vignettes, but there's this, uh, consistent storyline of Grant Chapman playing Brian Cohen, who's just going through Jerusalem, just trying to find his way, getting mistaken as the Messiah, then getting set for crucifixion. And you're following him all the way through. And it's just his interactions with, everyone around him and the absurdity of just the situations. It's less of like the kind of the vignette humor that Monty Python does. And I don't know. I think because of that, it's a little bit more structured. It feels like not everything's kind of just like could be just a standalone joke. Like there's some like that's carrying you all the way through. You've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody got to think for yourself. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. You're all different. Yes, we're all different. I'm not. You all got to work it out for yourself. Yes, we've got to work it out for ourselves. Exactly. Yeah, Life of Brian, for me, it was it was a much weaker movie than the uh, Holy Grail. I, I, it, it, I mean, I mean, it's, it's still a very good movie. I, I still enjoy it, but for me, Life Life of Brian depends more or less on the individual sketches. Holy Grail, more or less, every single sketch hits to some degree or other. Yes. Life of Brian, some hit more than others. There were a few where I thought, all right, I, I'm not. This one's not getting me as much. Let's just move on to the next one. Yeah. But it's not really a sketch movie. I mean, it has segments 
but it is very structured around Brian and Brian's journey. Uh, some stuff works very well. I like the the guy in the jail. <laughs> about, oh, you're, you're, I, 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 what I would give to get spat in the face. Um, you know, you know, like the, the blessed of the cheesemakers, of course, is a classic sequence, uh, and and the the whole crucifixion scene at the end is fantastic. But my my personal favorite, actually, bit. Um, Maybe not the whole sequence, but my favorite gag is probably when the aliens came in. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What the I, hell was up with that? I, I didn't get it. it well, it's, it's, just there to just, it's just there to be random. He falls off a tower, and he accidentally falls into a spaceship that happens to be passing by. Yeah, uh, it, it's a deus ex machina that comes before the deus ex machina is supposed to happen. It's, it's a very WTF non sequitur kind of joke, where it's just mm, like yeah. the, the joke just is suddenly aliens okay back to the movie now i i love how he when he crash lands he gets out and the soldiers immediately start chasing him again i just think the other guy's reaction of just seeing this spaceship just come and grab him and then crash lands is like well that was something you lucky bastard <laughs> yeah that was his line <laughs> i read someone online just what 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 so someone some person on the internet uh, not authoritative or anything but he said something and i thought you know what i bet you that's right uh because it makes sense that that probably probably one of the reasons they threw that sequence in there was to give Terry Gilliam something to do. Oh yeah, <laughs> because most of the movie. I mean, I think uh, Terry Jones is the only one that has a directing credit on this movie. That sequence is absolutely one hundred percent a Terry Gilliam set piece. Oh yeah, yeah, just like just the how it's shot and just the pacing and just all the pieces and it. it's like yeah, they brought and and here's the thing. I think Terry Gilliam like he he's not accredited to directing any of the. Um, first unit segments on these movies, but you can definitely see where he has his touch in like the camera work and just how he decides to shoot an action sequence. I think that's probably where, you know, probably he came in to help with Terry Jones is when they had to transition from one chase scene to the next. Um, Cause it definitely feels a little bit more like his style. Alex, what, what were your overall impressions of life and Brian, especially compared to Holy Grail? I, I didn't enjoy it as much. Um, it's, I literally wrote down in my notes, fine, but not great. I think you're you're talking a lot of the 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 jokes and the kind of skits were were good, but they didn't get as much of a laugh out of me as as a uh, Holy Grail did. I did like the more linear storyline though. That was kind of nice, just be able to e- keep on track a little bit easier, and it didn't seem uh, so random and just everything kind of is out of the place but not 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 the best it did have some really great lines though a lot of really great quotable stuff like when uh brian is telling his followers to fuck off and he's like how shall we fuck off <laughs> so there's a lot of good stuff in it but and then of course the biggest dickest <laughs> scene is amazing oh my gosh the 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 scene, the scene where he's where he's he's talking to the crowd. Yes. Yeah. There are no wonders here, or Wuthering, or Spencer Twithies. So yeah, there's a lot of great stuff, but I think the sort of in between parts where maybe they're trying to get more, you know, they're trying to build the story more aren't are aren't as great. It's it's got moments, but as a complete package, it it doesn't hold up as well as Holy Grail. Yep, that's a good point. Yep. And it kind of shows like, you know, they were trying to build it around maybe this running sketch of like, oh, what if we were in the Roman era and we just make fun of religion? It, it kind of feels like it's the same joke over and over and over again, and there's no variety to it. Whereas like, I guess with Holy Grail, yes, they keep this whole thing of like the knights and their quest for the Holy Grail, but every little episode that they go into, there's something new and different and outrageous. Still grounded in that universe, but it's still like, just a lot of variety whereas with this it, it i think how many times did they bring up the loretta joke and it got kind of oh, old no. always look on the bright side of life always look on the light side of life if life seems jolly rotten there's something you've forgotten and that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing when you're anyway, what is the meaning of life? Uh, it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that. Other than 
Holy Grail, this is probably the one that I'd seen the most of uh, in, in, in high school, having watched segments of it, which makes sense because, because this, this movie is a sketch movie. There is no real connective tissue other than this kind of nebulous act structure of, oh, we're going to talk about early life, we're going to talk about conception, we're going to talk about death, middle age, mm-hmm. different states of, of life. But the, the movie really is a sketch movie divided mm-hmm. into different segments. Right, yeah. It's a much bigger budget movie from the looks of it, from, mm-hmm. from, from, from the previous two. But uh, this one, I just remember seeing the sketches and loving the sketches. This, this, I don't know if I can rate this movie fairly because it's the sort of thing where it helped introduce me to Monty Python and I loved a lot of the stuff. The the death sketch at the end was something that I saw in high school and I thought it was fucking hilarious. I have to admit it's probably some of the grossest of all of Monty Python's sketches. Like was it yeah. Mr. Carusote's? <laughs> the, the fat glutton who just goes in and just is puking everywhere? I love that this bit awful. where the maid comes in to clean up and he just vomiting on her. It's so gross. He's just like so casually like and just how everyone's still trying to be modest and polite and not be offended by the smell but it's it's just too much it's too much this movie is basically a a south park movie where it it goes out of his way to offend everybody oh yeah and they just don't hold back on like oh yeah let's have two professors have sex in the classroom i'm like that is very yeah south parkish the hair is very high and the sauce is very rich with truffles, archives, Grand Marnier, bacon, and cream. Thank you, Gaston. There's still more. Oh. Allow me. <clears throat> A new bucket for Monsieur. <laughs> and the cleaning woman. So, Alex, what was your reaction to this movie? I, uh, <laughs> maybe half the skits were cool everything else was just like let's just move on man i didn't i didn't care for the just entirely skit based structure of it all that much i I was gonna say like i think a problem with this is like this is like joe you mentioned their biggest budget film but it was also one that they kind of just half asked the script at the last minute like they i think we're doing like i forget if it was like a tour that they were doing in america at the hollywood bowl and um they were supposed to be writing the script, and at the last minute, they're like, uh, we'll just put all this in there, and yeah, we got a movie. Yeah, this this movie works for me quite a bit, I'll, I'll be honest. I think the only sketch that I can think of off the top of my head that really doesn't work, for me at least, is the the one with the British soldiers and the and the, and the tiger. That one goes on for too long, and that one's not as, as, as funny to me as, as a lot of the other stuff. But I mean, the sketch with the guy, with the guy eating, it's, it's so gross, but it's so gross in the funniest way you got the um uh, every sperm is sacred is probably oh. the greatest thing they've ever written yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i kind of like how they just like they just keep building off of that it's like yeah we're gonna do a musical number with was it like 50 kids in this household and then suddenly they all become the chorus line i mean mo- most of these sketches in this in this movie really i don't know i don't know i, 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 I found it funny i could tell they were kind of half-assing it mm-hmm but it didn't bother me. Even stuff like uh, where the guy's walking down the street. He says, come on, come along this way, this way. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps going on. on. We're almost there. <laughs> actually, I don't know. I That actually, I like that one the most. I don't know why. I loved it. I think it's just like, it's like he's just breaking that fourth wall and them just like, all right, well, let's go where this is going. And then him just saying like, well, that's where I was born. What? You didn't like it? Well, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> when the guy's walking up to the house at the beginning and he sees the stork drop the baby down, and he goes, oh, bloody hell. It's just, I don't know. His reaction just gets me every time. So. God gets quite irate. Every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is great. If the sperm is wasted. I do have to ask, what did you guys think of the, uh, was it the opening 15 minutes of the Crimson Permanent Assurance? That was cool. 
I'm not gonna lie. That was I couldn't because I I couldn't tell if it was like actually supposed to be like we're gonna carry on from this point. This is gonna be the actual like start of the movie, or if it was gonna be its its own thing. I mean, I mean, it does come up again later on in the actual film. I don't know if I read this somewhere, but I think this was at the same time Terry Gilliam was working on Brazil. And I don't know, something about just the design or just the interior setting of that, it felt very, very close to Brazil. And I'm wondering if this was like one of those scenes or sketches they had originally planned for it, but they opt out because it's like it just didn't fit in the final script. And they decide, well, yeah, let's put it in this movie. I mean, it kind of fits because I was kind of just impressed with just like the imagination and creativity of that scene. It's it was just a blast to see old men wearing pirate and buccaneer attire shooting cabinets at different buildings. Well, according to, according to Wikipedia, for that sequence, it was originally meant to be just just another segment in the movie. And when they Terry Gilliam was shooting it, and they realized how kind of overwhelming and epic it was going to be, they decided that well, this is just going to overshadow the entire movie. We put it in the <laughs> middle of the movie, so they ended up including it as a short film at the beginning instead, and then calling back to it later on in the movie. Of, of course, yeah, yeah, that absolutely had Terry Gilliam's hands all over it. I, I think I think it's it's really funny, uh, especially looking at just kind of corporate drudgery turned into a pirate movie kind of a thing. I don't know. I just something about that I just liked. And I know we're kind of going off a tangent from most of the Monty Python sketches, but I kind of glad it was in that. I was glad that it also was in the beginning of the film and not like middle way through. So what a hell of a way to, to open the movie. It is. People think, oh, did we get into the right movie? Uh, should we go next door? Yeah. So, so, I mean, looking at all these three movies as, as a kind of, kind of a, a complete work, Holy Grail obviously is the, the the prime example of what these movies can attain to be it's got the plot structure but it's also got the sketch comedy it, 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 holy grail really is a sketch movie mm-hmm. but it's got a connective tissue through the whole thing right life of brian it was it was more structure but it didn't hit as well for me meaning of life can you know throw structure out the window uh just for the sketch format and for me for me that that works more than life of brian but it still doesn't hit the highs of holy grail i'm wondering if holy grail is one of those situations where a lot of times a filmmaker will hit the ground running with their best work early on just kind of the, one of the things they'll be remembered for where they just they they throw everything you know the, you know, the kitchen sink at at, at the screen you got mm-hmm. sam raimi doing evil dead you got the coen brothers doing blood simple mm-hmm. You know, you know, a lot of these filmmakers, especially when they're very young, mm-hmm. do some of the craziest stuff on mm-hmm. the lowest budget where they're just trying to succeed. Right. And then later on, you know, when they get bigger budgets, well, they've already blown their biggest ideas on their first low budget movie. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to come up with new and, and other ideas later on as their budgets get bigger and bigger. I think if anything, it just comes down to, I think the best filmmakers or the best creative minds are the ones who work best under pressure. And I know at least for Monty Python, there was a lot of pressure. Like this was their big first international film. They tried to make it like everyone thinks Holy Grail is like their first film, but I think they forget that. And now something completely different was their first actual vignette film. But that only did well in Britain because it was just a bunch of their sketches from the show into a feature film and it just did not do well overseas. So I think for this one, they tried to put all their best eggs in the basket, give it their all, go as crazy with the sketches and the comedy and make it just like pitch perfect with whatever they had going on. And it works. And you're right, as they kind of, I was noticing as well as I'm watching the movies in chronological order, the comedy kind of like started to lose steam and then kind of peaked again, but it was all over the place. And I think by then they had established themselves all across the world as like, you know, six British buffoons who are great with British comedy. So if if, if, if nothing else, this has gotten me to want to go back and rewatch, well, not rewatch, but, but watch a lot more of the uh, Flying Circus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is on Netflix, so maybe I will. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I was one thing I noticed. Like, man, all these are available on Netflix. Man, it's like they... Except for The Meaning of Life. It's the only one that wasn't. Well, for that one, it's like, I think if you're feeling adventurous enough after listening to this podcast and you want to dare it, yeah. Um, otherwise, I'd say watch the Mr. Kuasuete. How do you pronounce his name? The Fat Man? I don't remember. Puking Fat Man scene. If, if that hits a funny bone with you, then you should be good for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, that will do for this episode of the Film Illiterates podcast. You can find uh, all of our episodes on uh, filmilliterates.com and youtube.com slash filmilliterates. Uh, Nate, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me here at filmilliterates.com with these two schmucks. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Nathan underscore stone underscore films and also letterbox under Ivan Claysburg. Alex? Uh, we've got a lot of old episodes, a lot of video episodes with me and Joe that we did uh, for the film illiterates. So check them out on the website. Otherwise, I am on Rate Your Music, My Anime List, and Letterboxd under Half Scrim, and on Twitter at Alex D. Patton. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash filmilliterates. And also you can see my movie reviews, uh, my movie watching habits. If you're curious to see what I'm watching and what I think of movies at Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash film underscore illiterate. In the meantime, keep watching movies and keep it easy. Mm-hmm.